You know, sometimes it's nice to just let a story mean what we wish it would mean. Instead of what, in all probability, it actually means. Sometimes life is easier that way. Our own spin on an event is often more comfortable to deal with than a more complete and honest telling of the story. This is human nature. We tell ourselves stories, good stories, all the time. But in so doing, we might also be avoiding a more difficult truth. Take climate change, for example. The evidence is overwhelming and virtually indisputable, yet we consistently either deny that it's happening despite clear evidence, or we admit it's happening, but we soft sell the consequences. It won't be as bad as scientists say. The truth is just too difficult or too costly to face. So we tell ourselves stories. We do the same with many of our heroes, favorite athletes or pop stars or actors or politicians or theologians or pastors or anyone with power and prestige, when we see them misbehave badly, we tell ourselves stories. It can't be as bad as it looks. They've done such good work. Sometimes we even tell stories about ourselves that might keep us from attempting something hard or from taking the path less traveled. We tell ourselves we aren't smart enough or strong enough or good enough at heart to take that difficult path or that high road. So we adopt all kinds of convenient fictions about ourselves, about others, and about the world around us. Today my aim is to uncover a convenient fiction that many of us hold about Jesus and his ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We hold on to this fiction because it works for us, because it's easier and less complicated than the truth. Tell me if this story sounds familiar to you. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He doesn't encourage, but he also doesn't stop the crowd's heartfelt shouts of praise. Hosanna! The people want to make Jesus a king, but Jesus cleverly refuses by riding a humble donkey, and by doing so reveals that he is a servant to the poor and humble, and not positioning himself as a conquering king. Then in a matter of a few days, the same crowd turns against him and tries to crucify him because he's not going to be their king after all. And then his disciples discover after his trial, crucifixion, and resurrection that what he is really after is a heavenly kingship, not an earthly one. So Jesus invites us all to receive him as our spiritual savior, not a political one and with a pure heart to give him our spiritual worship while we wait for his kingdom to be fulfilled in heaven. I like that story. 
I like it very much because it suits my personality. It suits the theology I was taught growing up and it suits my social position. I like that story. It's just a shame that it's not the truth. So let's take this convenient fiction and peel back the layers. Like an onion, it might make our eyes burn a little, it might make us uncomfortable. So where do we start? Let's start with this innocent animal, the donkey. A humble beast of burden. Nothing like the white horse that we associate with a conquering king. This symbol of simplicity and humility reminds us of the rural life of, and of rejecting political power. And that story is so convenient for Mennonites who have a reputation and a theology that emphasizes simplicity and humility and suspicion of political power. The only problem with that fiction is that in the world of Jesus, a donkey did not conjure up images of a simple and rural and non-political life. A donkey was highly esteemed, and it was often the steed of choice for a king, especially at politically opportune times. With an almost semi-divine status, donkeys and kings belong together. Jesus was not the only king in the Bible to have ridden one. Even the proud and wealthy King Solomon rode a donkey on the day he was announced as the new king of Israel. And there are other more kingly examples in the Bible and in other ancient literature. I used to think that, that seeing Jesus on a donkey would have been confusing to those who wanted to make Jesus king of Jerusalem. No, Jesus on a donkey did not confuse anyone who was following and shouting Hosanna, nor did it confuse any religious leaders in Jerusalem or King Herod with all the power of the empire inside the city walls and his palace. They understood the threatening symbolism. They knew that it was customary in their world that when a king returned to his city after already securing victory in battle, the steed of choice for a victory parade into the city was a donkey. A king rode a horse into battle, yes, but when he came in peace or when the battle had already been won, he rode a donkey. So I'm sorry, it's simply wrong to suggest that by choosing a donkey, Jesus meant he rejected political kingship. I think what Jesus is signaling here is that he is in fact entering Jerusalem as their messianic king, but not a king who will seize his power by force or by violence. Rather, he is a king who comes in peace because the enemies are defeated. The essential battles have already been won. 
When looking at this picture more honestly, we can see that Jesus was not just an imagined threat to Caesar and Herod and to his own religious power structures. He was a real threat. He already had all these crowds and the public opinion behind him, and now he was staging a highly symbolic march making an in-your-face statement to the political powers. Without words, he was saying, give it up, you've already lost. And yes, he was also making a statement to his followers. He was telling them, make no mistake, we're not going to win with the sword. This is not a violent takeover of the throne of David. He was saying, the powers of the empire and the powers of the religious elite, they exercise their power by violence. They take from others. They accumulate wealth and coercive power so they can lord it over others. In contrast to all that, I am entering this center of religious and political power to show you how the power of God is about to unseat the powers of this world and put them in their place. Of the two power structures at play in Jerusalem, I think Rome was the least worried. They had all of Caesar's armies at the ready. I think the religious hierarchy felt the greatest threat. And this points to two other convenient fictions held by Christians for different reasons. One fiction is that the Jewish people as a whole turned on Jesus. That the people shouting Hosanna at the beginning of the week made an about face and were shouting crucify by the end of the week. The other fiction is that Jesus' crucifixion was entirely a Roman act and not a Jewish one. And there's honorable intent behind that fiction, of course, because we don't want to be anti-Semitic. But the truth is more complicated. This is not a matter of ethnicity or religion. It's about religious power and what happens when that power is threatened. Turns out Jewish political structures act a lot like Christian political structures when they're threatened. The Jewish people, like Christians today, were deeply divided. Jesus was immensely popular outside of Jerusalem. He could thumb his nose at the scribes and Pharisees in the outer regions of Galilee and get away with it. Because rural Jews were likely already suspicious of the power elite inside Jerusalem. The temple rulers who taxed and overtaxed them. The ones who collaborated with the empire in order to maintain the power that they did have. But in Jerusalem, Jesus was a threat to these religious leaders. Healing someone on the Sabbath upset the power elite. And if you lived in Jerusalem, in that urban environment, you had personal ties to the power elite. If they weren't your close relatives, they were probably your neighbors, or you rubbed shoulders with them every day in the market. 
So now at the beginning of Passover, the biggest festival of the Jewish year, both sides of this great divide in Judaism were in Jerusalem. Residents as well as visitors from Galilee. So there's no biblical evidence that the people shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday were the same people shouting crucify on Good Friday. If I'd venture a guess, I'd say it was mostly Galileans shouting Hosanna and mostly Jerusalemites shouting crucify. I don't have hard evidence of that either. But to me, it's a far more logical explanation than saying people just change their minds. The power elite in Jerusalem, in the world of Jerusalem, had a lot at stake. Jesus posed a real and present danger to the status quo. It would have been an easy thing for the religious leaders to stir up a crowd of their neighbors and relatives in Jerusalem and convince them that their peaceable future was at risk if Jesus didn't die. And one more quick fiction while we're at it. Hosanna is not some generic shout of praise like we often make it out to be. It's kind of a hybrid shout. Part praise and part cry for help. Hosanna literally means save us. This was a political chant being shouted by a crowd of oppressed Galileans, I believe. I have to believe that they were staging a march for freedom that Jesus actively participated in. So, what does this all mean for you and for me? As followers of Jesus in the postmodern and secular West in the 21st century, now, this, this truer story makes sense for then, and it makes sense for Matthew's community of readers. How does it make sense for us? Like Johnny Rashid said in his sermons and talks in our community last week, Jesus took a side. Jesus was not a neutral observer. He confronted injustice. He confronted oppression. He confronted hypocrisy wherever it appeared, whether it was in the militarized empire or in the power structures of his own religion. The convenient fiction of Palm Sunday for us contemporary Mennonites and for a lot of Christians for that matter, is that Jesus was not political. That Jesus only wants to save us spiritually. That Jesus desires only an internal and spiritual transformation. That the primary role of Christians is to have an internal and personal relationship with Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die and leave the earth behind and all worship around the heavenly throne. 
The inconvenient truth is that we are called now to collaborate with God in making this world new, not just the world to come. This world is the world God loves and is seeking to heal and save. This is the world where God wants to establish God's reign of justice and shalom. And we are God's partners in that work. Like Jesus, we are not called to neutrality. We are called to commit to the side that Jesus is committed to. And yes, it is a mission of peace. Like Jesus on the donkey, we reject the path of violence. Ours is a mission of mercy and grace and love and peace and compassion and also courage. Because like Jesus, we must confront the powers that be. The Church of Jesus Christ, even today, should be making the empires of the world nervous. Those who wield their power primarily in ways that protect their own interest, if they do not feel in the least threatened by Jesus' followers, then we and they are probably holding on to Palm Sunday's convenient fiction of a faith that is only personal and internal and harmless to the power structures. I say we stop telling that story to ourselves and choose the truer one. And that won't be easy. There will be resistance. Let's share this prayer of confession together that's in your bulletin. Jesus Christ, self-giving and generous Messiah, we confess that we continue to misunderstand who you were. We continue to make you into our image, into the kind of ruler we are comfortable with. Jesus, lead us where you want us to go. Take us with you into the places you still want to save. Show us the human lives and the power stru structures that you still want to transform, including our own. Jesus, save us. Hosanna, we beg of you. Jesus Christ, our self-giving and generous Messiah, forgives us, as always, and invites us to continue the baffling and beautiful journey of the cross.